Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. See here, if I can coordinate it. Uh, as always, I'm trying to get the audio and the visual the video at the same time. Uh, it's Monday evening. I want to do the Parsha. I have a very busy week coming up. Hope to be in Lakewood if things work out for Shabbos. We'll talk about that later. And um, <clears throat> we'll take a look at Parsha's Korach. The often addresses. This is being sponsored by my friend, now friends of the podcast, um, Joseph Hiller, Joe Hiller. And he says, in, in, in honor and loving memory of his grandparents, Rel and Leon Weisenberg. Listen to this story. His grandmother, Rel Tenenbaum, was born in Radom. You know, that's Polish, Polish. Okay, Radom. And during the war, she lost both her parents and a younger brother. And then she survived Treblinka, Bergen-Belsen, and Auschwitz. That's unbelievable. Treblinka usually was an extermination. And while imprisoned as a forced laborer in the Nazi munitions factory, factories, she did her best to sabotage German weapon protection as much as possible. So she was a tough person, obviously. And Rella refused. This, listen to this. She wouldn't take any money from Germany after the war. That, to me, is extremely impressive. My parents took money. She went. She refused all offers of reparation out of war. It was blood money. That's what Menachem Begin said. I have, I have the greatest respect for such people. It's hard to do that. She was intelligent, strong, resourceful, and fiercely spirited. I would say so. And as far as his grandfather's concerned, Leon Weisberg was from Zvolen in Poland. That I don't know. During the war, he escaped from his work camp. He evaded the NKVD and he escaped to Stalin, so to speak. He eventually reached Tashkent. That's where a lot of Jews were. He married my mom, my grandmother in the war after Frankfurt. So obviously, he got out of Soviet Russia, went to the American Zone of DPs. He got, went to Brooklyn, then Detroit, where in 48 he got a job at Cadillac. Oh, okay. He spent his life working at Cadillac. Eventually, retiring with the rank of Master Craftsman, he was kind, humble, loving, generous, and was known as a prankster in his youth. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, <laughs> did you inherit any of that, Joseph? Okay. But anyway, pay tribute to their memories in the Shamash and Avalia, as they say. Especially people went through the war years. My goodness. She wouldn't take any money. Look at that. Uh, Pasha's Korah <clears throat> been beaten to death. Everybody knows the story of Korah. But the and every time it comes up, so it always strikes me, you know, in the same general area, which is politics. Get it? But I'll try to make the point. Today I was thinking about it. What's the case? Continuation, they have you know by shlach korach. You have it that way. Now, it is true among the Mefarshim that there are different opinions about exactly when korach happened. And if I remember correctly, Nachshoni discussed that for many years ago. I just happen to remember the Ibn Ezra talks about it, and I remember the Ibn Ezra points out that this happened earlier. That you know when Moshe made the switch at the beginning of a midbar to fire the firstborn and bring in the levies, so that already generated discontent. I'm sure it's true, because it, all the Bechoras were lost of a job. And the fact that Moshe himself is a levy, you know, looks like it's a favoritism. He said, Hashem told me to do it. Yeah, right, you know. 
I, you'll tell me the people should have believed in Moshe because they saw him in Harsinai, all the rest of it. That's why I always have a problem with the Rambam. The Rambam's a philosopher, not a historian. A philosopher isn't ideas, arguments, you know, beautiful arguments, a beautiful mind. And if the thing makes sense, then that's the reality of it, because it makes sense. Anybody challenges the reality of it is being nonsensical. He's going against <clears throat> logic, efficient thinking, and so forth. That may be true in the area of mathematics. <laughs> it's not true in the area of humanistic behavior of people. People are contradictory. They're inconsistent. Right? Um, one second here. What's, what's my what's my machine saying over here? Hmm. People are inconsistent, they're contradictory. They do they say one thing, they do the other, they do things that are totally illogical. That's what we call history. There are certain humanistic disciplines, get it? Mathematics is not one. Chemistry is not one. History is a humanistic discipline. You see great people do dumb things and dumb people do great things. You see logical people do illogical things and vice versa. You see brave people be weak and weak people be brave. It happens. And in a historian, you never can say, how could somebody do such such thing? How could such thing happen? Since you're dealing with people, don't get no surprises. <clears throat> no surprises. That's the problem with the Rambam. So the Rambam, always being a philosopher, so he, and a theologian, so he wanted to buttress Judaism against Islam primarily. And they say Muhammad is the greatest prophet. We say Moses is the greatest prophet. So the Rambam can point out that Muhammad did his prophecies, his claimed prophecies without, when nobody was there. He just told people about it. Now, Shane came up, Shabbat, he did in front of <clears throat> 600,000, all the rest of it. And he backs it up by saying, look at Harsinah, where Hashem says, Those words say, God says, I'm going to reveal myself in order to confirm you're, you as a real prophet. No one else ever has that kind of confirmation, visible in front of everybody. And once that happened, so it's irrefutable proof that Moshe was true. Moshe is with Hiroshemis, it's impossible to deny. La Fuke, any other prophet, even Yeshayel, Yermi, all the rest of it, you don't know whether they're telling the truth. But Moshe, you know. This is the argument of the Rambam. Of course, if you go with the Rambam, the whole Parsha's Korach makes no sense. Because Korach, especially the way Chazal portrayed, was challenging the validity of Moshe. God never told you this. You made it up. Look in the Medeshraba. It says those words, Bodom Alibo. You made up stuff. How can you say that? According to the Rambam, Hashem personally confirmed him. But a humanist, such as myself, not surprised at anything. You can confirm whatever you want. If it's in, if it's my interest to deny it, I will deny it. You understand? Uh, you know, don't, don't, don't be shocked at that. And so if Korah comes along and says, um, Moshe is a liar, this and the other, and... He put his brother into this job. He put his, his nephews into that job. The whole Levy thing was a put on, even though Karl was a Levy. It appeals to the basest emotions of people. And even though their logic should have told him, how can you believe a thing like this? Moshe took you out of Egypt. He did the ten plagues. He split the Red Sea. Brought you to Harsinai. He brought you the Mon. He got you the Bear, etc., etc., etc. It don't matter. People think, yeah, but he put his brother in because it's a nepotism. You understand? Know that was the essential argument of Korah, right? Uh, of course, according to Ghazali, demagogued it. 
and therefore he bamboozled the public. But the whole point of the Parsha is about politics, with a capital P, as in Aristotle's politics. And politics is the art of making people do what you want them to do, large numbers of people. You see, I'm just one individual. I don't have the physical force to compel large numbers of people to, to, to do what I want them to do. I may not even have the physical force to compel one person to do so. Certainly not masses of people, but through the arts of politics. In other words, through manipulation, through the right use of language, appealing to baser instincts, and all that, you can move people to do things you want them to do. That's the definition in the original philosophical sense of politics. Right? You, you, you get people to do what you want them to do. Now, by the way, generally speaking, <clears throat> that's something of an honorable thing. The society needs people to do stuff. You, you know, you don't want to hold everybody as a slave with a gun to the head. And so you try to use political organization, rewards and punishments and things like that, persuasion, persuasive rhetoric, um, to get them to do what you want to do. You want them to go to war and go into battle. You have to be patriotic, appeal to their emotions, things of that nature. So, um, Moshe, by the way, was not much of a politician, which is interesting. But Korach was. And the first rule you do in Korach is you look at the public mood and you manipulate, manipulate the public mood and emotions. America is going crazy right now where I live because the right is doing it and the left is doing it at the same time. And so, you know, people are going nuts on both ends. The right is, is manipulating using its trigger words and all that. The left is doing the same thing. And, you know, people, the regular hum on hum, like, which way do you go? They end up splitting. We live in such times. Okay? Now, when it comes to uh, the story of Korah, so, David Ezra says it happened long before, and he simply made an abase appeal to their emotions. He started with the Bechorus, and then he worked his way up. But others don't learn it that way. You learn that the Torah is, in this case, Mugdamukhar. First came the story by Midbar, then came the story in Nosso, then Baloscha, then Shlach, and then Korach. In which case, it seems to me something very, very interesting. Korach, Korach was waiting for the right mood in the public. There are many great politicians and leaders in history, they got to wait for their mood. You know what I'm saying? It could be the wrong place, the right person at the wrong time. <clears throat> it's got to be that the people are now in the mood to listen comes to mind, let's see, Winston Churchill. For many years, he said, oh, watch out for Hitler. You know, Britain better arm. Don't trust him. The public was simply not in the mood. Then when the second world started and this and that happened in May of 1940, all of a sudden the people were in the mood. And when Churchill said the same thing, same for, oh, he's the greatest leader, inspiring rhetoric, which was true. So you had to get the right moment. So Korach, you could say, seems to me, it's waiting for the right moment. I'll tell you what I mean. The Jews all the time were, were, were at the foot of Mount Sinai. Then they start to, only last week, in Baloscha, I mean, two weeks ago, they start to leave Har Sinai. Talked about this. As soon as they leave Har Sinai, and they're going to have a war with the Canaanites, so you always start to have borching and, and complaining. For he come him. And after Misonim comes the Kirvis Ataiva. So you already start to see the public is in an uh-uh mood. <clears throat> not, that was not the case. 
during the whole time, as far as we know, that they were sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai with the newly erected Mishkan and getting all the rules that make up the book of Ayikra. The Karbonus, the Tomatara, Kedoshim T, the whole nine yards. Go on him. You don't see any uh, complaints. When they started to move and things get a little nervous and they're worried about the rigors of the journey, perhaps, as the Ramam puts it, or the approaching war, who knows what. So then people started being misowned and then they start to have, like, say, go and complain about the food. Ad Kedekach, that we all know, drove Moshe Rabbeinu crazy. He said, kill me, I can't take it anymore. So this is a new thing. Now, then this was followed by Miriam and Aaron complaining about Moshe. Whatever the reasons were, and whatever, however, the Rambam famously describes it at the end of Hilkas uh, Saras. But the bottom line is, <clears throat> even his own team was complaining about him. So the Borching started at the bottom with the Masonim. It could even be, as the Rambam puts it, or actually the Chazal too, that it started with the Erev but it spread. And then it spread more. And it even reached the elites like Miriam and Aaron. Now, in each case, it was nipped in the bud, so to speak, by divine intervention. What happened to Masonim? God's anger flared by Yechobetzi what happened to Kibbutz Ataiba? We all know they all died there. For Habasar Adenet Ben Shinam Batermi Kares. What happened to Miriam and Aaron? She got bun Saras. Aaron didn't. He should have got also, but for certain reasons he was spared. Sat so nipped that in the bud, right? Matter of fact, even Moshe said, "Don't hurt her." El nor Hashem said, "Nope." She's going to be. We're going to nip this in the bud. Okay, it was me. Then comes. The Meraglim story. What happened with the Meraglim story? People started screaming. They went into a panic. Now, mind you, Korach is a member of the elite. He is observing all that. He saw it. They all cried and wailed. I want you to think about it. You have a group of three million people in the desert, all screaming, Vas Vazayim, woe is us. Oy, boy, boy. Multiplied by three million. It's a terrifying, it's psychologically, it's a terrifying business. And so, a guy like Carr can discern Moshe is already collapsing. You know what I'm saying? He said, send the spies. He said, we should go fight them. People don't want to hear it. Whatever, whatever the Lashon is over there. They cried all night. And, uh, you know, what can I tell you? It was a bad scene. Public mood crashed, as we would say today. Now, it may be that it crashed for nothing, and that's what God got angry. What are you crashing psychologically for? Nothing happened. You see? Nothing happened. Don't worry about the ten spies. Although now will be irrational so. But they cried and screamed anyway, as we all know the story. And then comes the terrible punishment, in which all hope is 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 taken away from the Jewish people in the desert. I want you to put yourself in the f- framework, mental framework. I'm not doing any fancy mafarshim over here. Just common sense, at least as, as far as I can see. Like, what do I know? Just tell me what, the way I understand it, as I always say. Here the people got out of Egypt. They went here. 
or Harsinai, this and the other. And now they got a sentence of death. But Midbar, Isaiah, You're all going to die here in the desert. Your children will get to Israel, but you are all doomed. Now, there's a type of person who says, I'm willing to sacrifice so my children have it better. True. There are people like that. There's also people like this. The heck with the next generation. What about me now? There are plenty of those. <clears throat> now, I was wondering, just before I did this, I look at Chumash again. When Hashem tells Moshe, you know, they're all going to die in the desert, did Moshe actually tell that to the Jewish people? Or, you know, so did they know that about this doom? But the answer seems to be yes. Because it says in Shlach, like Daber Moshe Sadvarim Kol Yisrael, Okay? So Moshe told him, guess what? Hashem told me. The cause of sin in Maragam, you're all going to die. Your kids will make it, but you're going to die. And you're going to wander around the desert here doing nothing for the next 30 some years. And the people went into Avelis. Okay? And next thing you know, they resorted <coughs> to desperation. Because they did the Mapilim, you know, they said, let's go and attack the Kanani and the Mori, whoever it was. And they all got killed, as we know. So, in other words, the people were what we would call a volatile mood. The problem for the reader is that this is now interrupted by the fact that you have the Mitzvah of Sissis and the Mitzvah of. Uh, of a, what do you call it, of challah uh, uh, and stuff like that in there. But don't do that. Instead, finish up, I'll use the English stuff, finish up chapter 14 and go right away to Korach. You see what I'm saying? That's where the, that's how the story picks up. So finish when it says, Hinenev Olinu, Vayirna Maliki, Vakanana Yosha, Barabayakum, Vayaksamar that they went and destroyed them. So the Jews who tried to proceed ahead got wiped out something along the lines of the tribe of Ephraim. Okay. So what does that mean? What does that tell you? They just heard they were all going to die. Someone went crazy and tried to resort to extreme measures. They got wiped out by the Kanani Murray. And then when he got Korach, but doesn't my mirror. And then Korach makes his move. You see? Now it makes sense. He saw the public morale collapsed. Moshe looks like a failed leader. He couldn't get him to listen to Ragam, and he couldn't rescue them. You see, the first time he saved them by the Egozov. Okay. So then he showed he proved his worth. This time he was not able to rescue him. So you took us out of Egypt, but now we got up the creek, and we're all going to perish over here. And you ain't doing nothing about it. Now, they didn't take the responsibility on themselves as adults and say it's our fault. Because as a oilam, as a, as a public, it's never the public's fault. It's always the leader's fault. So it says, that the enemy crushed and wiped out the mapilim. You see how you're supposed to read it? And then Korach made his move. Okay? With Dawson Aviram and Omben Pelas and all that business. So it means that Korach said like this, now is my moment. And he was not wrong. Korach was a successful practitioner of politics. 
Again, I mean this, as I said last time, in the Machiavellian sense, and that's not a word to be used cynically. I know sometimes used cynically. I'm talking about in the Aristotelian, Machiavellian sense in which you judge the public and you make your moves at the right moment, at the right time, employing the right rhetoric. And he obviously was successful because he made the argument that Moshe has appointed the wrong people and others should take their place and the tribe of Reuben should be the head and the Bechorah should be the head and so on and so forth. Notice, any group out there, he said, if I was in charge, you'd be on top. Which is what you do in politics. <clears throat> if I want people to support me over you, I simply have to first find out what they what they don't like about you or what you're failing to do for them, and then I'll say, I'll do it. Just find out what you're doing they don't like, I'll say, I won't do it anymore. Or vice versa, What the, they're, they're angry, you haven't done it for them. I'll do it. I think I told the story. My father-in-law, Paul Shalom, was friends with William Donald Schaefer, who was a big Maryland politician, was a mayor, a governor. Going back in the 50s, he told me a story. And the first time Schaefer ran for office, which was for the city council of Baltimore, it was a different time, of course. He said, what should I run on? Because he was just a politician. He said, complain about the garbage. Nobody likes the garbage. If it's delivered twice a week, say he'll do it three times a week. Or something like that. And he ran and he won. Because that's basic politics. You find out what the chesaron is, and you promise to fulfill the chesaron. Doesn't mean you have to keep your promise. That's a separate question. Now, if you want to get the public to do what you want, and I'll repeat. So if you eliminate, if you go straight from 14, the end of Perik Yodalit, I really shouldn't use these Perik, but I will. And if you skip Tesvav and just read the story from Yodalit and go straight to Tesvav, then it makes total sense. And when Rashi says, I've always had trouble with that Rashi because it's taken out of context. I know the Medrash Rabbah from which Rashi is lifting it and it's in a different context. What they mean, is talking about the fact that the odds were bad. You know, it was only 250 people and only one was going to win and the others will all die. Why would I want to ask like not even Polish roulette, that's Ukrainian roulette, you know? Where it's a, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> what are they called? The Polish, uh, what's the right word? You know, in other words, let's put it this way. It's not that there's one bullet in the revolver. It's, you know, there are five bullets out of six in the revolver. So the odds are against, the odds are against you. You know, when you pull the click. So Rashi, for some reason, either had a different gear saw or has his reasons for doing so. And I leave that to the Rashi before. But I'm serious, I'm not being funny. But generally speaking, you don't know when Maral Shtus Kazul. The Shtus, he made the right movement. Karuch was probably planning to do this a long time before. But it wasn't the right moment. When Moshe was riding high, it's not the time to take him on. When Moshe stumbles, that's time to take him on. Aye, the public should say, but he's led us so successfully until now, and we owe him a lot. It's not how the public is. I told you before, the politics is a humanistic discipline. Like history, like economics, it, it's what people will do. And people will do very dumb things. And Jews will definitely do very dumb things. That's their history. What are you going to do? And so the result is that Parakarach uh, picked the right moment. The only thing is, as I always say, there is no way that Korach could have calculated that Moshe would pull the nuclear option. Because Moshe was Moshe. And they didn't get it. That's the interesting thing.
We have to remember all the time when you read the Chumash, it's an evolutionary story. It's a story in progress. <clears throat> they didn't know about Moshe, what you and I know about Moshe, because <laughs> we read the whole story till he died, so we've seen everything. They're part of the story as it goes along. They're learning new chapters about Moshe. You and I, the reader, in this week's Pasha, learn that Moshe Rabbeinu was the type of guy who says, I want an earthquake now, and you get an earthquake. I did not know that. I knew that Moshe had, could do ten plagues, and I knew he could split a sea, and I knew he could go up to Shemayim for 40 days and 40 nights. I did not know that he could say, in Kamos Kolon Himus they can make the ground swell up. They didn't know it. Believe you me, if Karach knew that Moshe could pull that one off, would have kept the big fat mush up, obviously. But Karach was operating on the basic rules of politics. The whole point of the Chumash is Moshe transcends politics because of the unique nature of his prophecy. You see? This is the same mistake that Miriam and Aaron made although of a much different nature. What did Hashem say to Miriam and Aaron? Lo kein Moshe Avdi, In other words, you can say Lashon Hara like this and like that. I get it. You don't know who you're dealing with when it comes to Moshe. You don't know who you're dealing with. Okay? So if people who are as close to Moshe as high Madrake as Aaron and Miriam, and they were. If they didn't fully get it, how do you expect a guy like Korach to get it? Now, all these people were big people, and they say Korach was all among the biggest, but he didn't know that Moshe could pull the nuclear option. Okay. So, in that case, the story of Korach is a brilliant tale. Why? It's a guy who plotted very well, planned very well, ran rings around Moses, when it comes to being a politician, because why didn't Moshe Chabba was going on and nip it in the bud? Why didn't Moshe say, let's take this on you versus me, man to man? Something like that. Moshe didn't do that. Matter of fact, Moshe was helpless when they said, and all that stuff. Moshe was Nistatu Taimu? He never going to answer I mean, why don't we find in the Chumash that Moshe responds, Karach, you phony, you're just looking to take care of yourself. You're a demagogue, you're appealing to people's base or emotions. And why didn't Moshe say the same thing that the wife of Omen Capella said to Omen Pellas? Which is, listen, what are you guys fighting for? If it's, I don't have the top job, Karach will have the top job. You won't have the top job anyway. You were a flunky then, you'll be a flunky now also. But Moshe didn't give any of his replies. Because Moshe was not good at politics. When I say politics... The art of manipulating the public and using the right language, that wasn't his skill set. Hashem didn't pick somebody like that. He picked somebody who's on a Mikol Odub, maybe precisely because Hashem said, I don't want the Chumash to be a matter of politics. There is a famous Drosh Saran who says that's why God picked somebody who was, a, who was tongue-tied. You know, Kvad uh, Peh, assuming that it was a stutterer and so forth, if that's what it means. Because then people shouldn't say that the reason Moshe Rabbeinu was able to lead the Jews out of Egypt and get him to say Nasanisha because he was a Korach, who was, was a good politician, a good persuader. The opposite, Moshe couldn't give a speech to save his life. He was bad at that sort of thing. And if the people listened to him, it was only because it, because it was the real thing. So in this week's part, we see the illustration of the real thing. 
And so you have a wonderful example, brilliant insight into politics, but politics stops at the water's edge. Politics doesn't help you if you're up against a guy that can just cause the ground to, to open up. Chazal, for some reason, had trouble with this. And I remember in Menesh Rabbah, they said, Hashem, why are you making me do another nace? All right. I mean, the reason is obvious. <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, it's a Chazal, so I don't know. But, you know, to me, it's Pashat, which is, Moshe had no, no other example to do. He, didn't have, he wasn't a good debater. And so what he said is, you know, we're, we're, we're going to prove we're right by a miracle. Of course, he proved he's right. Uh, so I think that this week's Parsha, as is often the case, shows you very interesting things about the subject of leadership. But as I see it, it never quite fits the pattern of Moshe because he's in a unique category because he can do things that nobody else could do. He had a relationship with God that nobody else could have. Um... Uh, it's food for thought. Anyway, uh, I want to thank Joseph Hiller, as I said before, and pay tribute to the memory of his grandparents. And with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com